This is God's word. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such people also go into great detail about what they have seen, and their unspiritual minds puff them up with idle notions. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The word of the Lord. Uh, Let's pray as we begin. God of grace, as we enter into this place and look to you in some way to connect with us, um, to help make some sense of our lives and our identities, um, we come from different places. And though we might come from doubt or we might come from great belief, though we might come from great self-assurance or we might come from a place of great self-doubt. And although we come from sometimes from a joyful place and sometimes from a place, others of us from a place of sorrow and grief, We're all in the same boat. We need your grace every day, every minute of our life because we're more of a mess than we care to admit. We look to you. We look to you to be gracious, and we know that you are because you show us through your scriptures that you respond to our mess by moving towards it. You respond to broken people by bringing, by coming into their lives, taking the brokenness on yourself so that we might be healed. So would you meet us in that kind of healing, restorative way now through these words and through your scripture? In Christ's name we pray, amen. I've stumbled on a blog this week that uh, captured perfectly the issue that we're dealing with today. The blog is called Parenting Illustrated with Crappy Pictures. That's the name of the blog. I'm not making this up. So this is a post, and then I'll show you one of the pictures from the post. I first encountered this closet phenomenon of parenting and pet annoyance when I was 23 and had just started dating my now husband. We were invited to dinner by a couple we didn't know very well. They were older, like 30 or even 31, which sounds horribly old when you are 23. And they had a baby who was spending the night at grandma's. I was enchanted with their friendly orange cat. Our hosts, however, were not thrilled with him. I politely looked at the baby photo and then continued to ask questions about the cat. What his name was and how old he was and all the things I was supposed to be asking about the baby. I was 23. 
Babies were not on my radar and thus very alien to me. It became clear that our hosts were truly irritated by their cat. They admitted that they used to love him to pieces as evidenced by the framed cat photos on the walls, but that their adoration had faded since having their daughter. I was shocked and appalled. The mom concluded with a dismissive, you'll understand when you have kids. And I decided that she was a cold-hearted animal hater. I knew I'd never, ever be like that. And she says, fast forward a bunch of years. And I'll save you a lot of the uh, actual post. But it basically goes like this. She goes into getting pregnant, buying baby supplies, and thinking it's cute that the, that the cat is resting in the bassinet and taking a picture of it. But then the baby's born. And now it's not so cute that the cat is inside the bassinet. Then the baby starts to toddle around, and suddenly it's not so cute to have the baby learning the hard way about cat puke in the morning. And then the baby has just fallen asleep, and suddenly it's not so cute to have the cat meowing loudly in the room. So she goes on and on about this development in her life, and then finally she says, to the cold-hearted mom from years back, you were right. Want to see some baby pictures? So let's see the photo. <clears throat> the caption says, the cat is annoying. Here's a photo of my baby. Um, so I don't know. This is, this, is, uh, this is the blog that I discovered. And because this is the mode I'm in with little kids, I'm, I'm, most of the humor was right down my alley. But this is the amazing thing about this blog post. This is why I bring it up. It's because of the, the hundreds of comments that came after this post. Most of them actually... Uh, positive and just saying, oh yeah, I have the same experience, same thing, once I had kids, I, you know, my pets weren't as important. But then there were others, not so positive. This person says, she calls herself a mama who still loves her cats. And then the comment is, I, f- I feel really bad for all of your pets, frowny face. I love my kids and I still love my cats and I think there is something very wrong with you if something as simple as popping a kid out of your own loins can change that. All right. Then Janelle says, wow, I can't believe the cold-hearted, unabashed selfishness I'm reading here. If you have animals and then kids, make room in your tiny heart for both and enjoy the diversity of life going on around you. The kids will thank you later for teaching them tolerance and love for all things. And then uh, one final quote, it gets better. This person says, I hope when... (laughs) I can almost not believe this. I hope when placing you in a nursing home, your kids will use the same amount of compassion you used on your pets. (laughs) Nice lesson you moms are teaching your kids. You are a lot of what is sad and wrong in this world. And then the, you know, the clincher. When kid number one wakes up, or wakes up kid number two, do you wish them dead as well? Hypothetical question, just kind of left hanging there. Now, as you see, you know, you can see this happening in so many different ways. Depending on the issue that you get fixated on, depending on the issue that you begin to hang on to religiously and with scrupulous moralism, there, there's a trend to get judgmental, and then it kind of leads towards getting divisive, and then it gets ugly. You know, you see it in all kinds of ways, whether it's the correct 
way to get your child their education and getting them in, is it this school or is it in that school? Um, or a totally different issue in sports, is it heel strike or barefoot, barefoot running? Any runners out there? It's a big, big debate right now. I don't know if you knew that. but um, Child rearing, is it uh, attachment parenting or cry it out? Hmm? Chick-fil-A, yes or no? All right, so you, you get the idea. And here's the thing is that um, this tendency is, is, is basically the default drive of the human heart. To take, in, really, to apply it spiritually, to take any life system, any, any spiritual answer, any... Uh, religion, and even any, any um, subset of the Christian faith, any Christian tradition, every single one of them has examples of people taking um, the prescribed path to God, or what we call in the Christian tradition the gospel, and, and turning it and bending it towards a more scrupulous moralism that leads towards the judgmental and the division and the ugly. It's, it's part of the human nature to, to bend everything in that direction, even though as Christians, the Christian faith basically says, you have in the gospel, you have something that goes against every other belief system that gives you some way that you can get yourself to God, you can find peace, you can find justification, you can find your identity and self-security, Every other one says, here's a way to get that and to achieve that. And the, and the gospel says, you can't do that. And so God enters in and does that for you. It is God's work that gives that to you. And so the Christian can have, actually, because of that, because of the gospel, the Christian can have absolute confidence ditching scrupulous moralism for good. Um, and most of us, our answer would be, okay, how? Because <laughs> uh, we find ourselves always kind of bending back towards the religiosity, really. And this is, uh, this is what this passage essentially is dealing with. And really, let's look at it in terms of three s- steps towards letting go, towards ditching scrupulous moralism in favor of the gospel approach. And the first point is to let go of religiosity, The second step is to come out of the shadows, and the third is to receive what is already yours. Let go of religiosity, come out of the shadows, receive what's already yours. Let go of religiosity. Now, in verse 16 of chapter 2, the Apostle Paul and Timothy are writing to this church, and they say this, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. We, <clears throat> we, prob- we can't really grasp how huge uh, of a deal those things were that were just listed. As the Christian church began, it was a Jewish church primarily. The Apostle Paul, when he went to cities to, to spread this new message of Jesus, um, he would often start in the synagogue as a start- launching point utilizing their ancient scriptures, which included loads and loads of, of rules that people had gotten very scrupulous about. And religiosity um, 
had really taken and won the day in those places. So he says, and he's basically, he's throwing a lot of stuff out here. I mean, we have no, it's hard for us to get a sense of how huge these things were as identity markers of Jewish Christians at this time. The eating and drinking, clean or unclean food, the religious festivals, the new moon celebrations, the Sabbath day. So let's just take one of them, the eating issue, and see a, a, a quote as James Dunn is a commentary writer, a historian, theologian about this time, and he says this, resistance on this issue of the clean or unclean foods was one of the make or break points in the time of Jesus for Jewish people. He quotes uh, the book of Maccabees, a writing from this time, and he says, many in Israel stood, or this is the book of Maccabees, 1 Maccabees 1, verse 62 through 63. Many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant, and they did die. So this commentator says, observance of the food laws was counted a fundamental mark of loyalty to nation and religion. The book of Colossians says, kind of throws it aside. Don't let anyone judge you because of that stuff. How does he get to that point? Add to it, you've heard of Peter, one of the apostles, who was with Jesus. Peter would almost certainly never have seen Jesus violate one of these food laws. Um, because Jesus ministered in that Jewish context. So Peter, alongside of him, never would have seen him violate these laws. As Peter began, as as Jesus died and rose from the dead and ascended, and now the the new church was was blossoming in all kinds of Jewish places, uh, Peter and all of his Jewish cohorts were still hanging on to all of these things. Um, But then there was this point, if you know kind of the story in the book of Acts, where Peter uh, gives it all up gives up that, that stringent uh, belief that there's unclean and unclean things. How did that happen? How did Peter, who his, his whole record of what Jesus did was that Jesus followed all of those things, how did he suddenly let go? And the answer was, I mean, it was so strong, it was so hard to let go of the religiosity of this that he needed a supernatural vision from God to explain basically the implications of what Jesus had done with regard to all of these things. And really, the end point of that story is those food laws and rigorous holding to them and staying away from people who don't was inhibiting the spread of the Jesus movement, of the gospel. And the vision basically said, now in Jesus, those things have all been kind of put to the side and relegated. And it's not because Peter based that on how Jesus lived. But this passage reminds us that It's rooted in how Jesus died. So that in verse 20, you see the hint, you see the connection as the background is then given to why no judgment should still be flying around about these issues since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. You know, scrupulous moralism is just about the best thing we can do. It's, a, it's, it's the, the best effort we can bring to the table. And the gospel says that's not enough. And in fact, it puts all of that in the category, as we read there, 
in verse 20, of the elemental spiritual forces of the world as opposed to the supernatural force of what Jesus has done on the cross. So Peter, and then the whole church with him, can suddenly back up from this incredibly powerful tradition because they've rooted it in Christ's death. Something new has happened. Now, how do we understand this? Well, it really moves on to the second point. We need to keep figuring this out. Coming out of the shadows. In order to let go of scrupulous moralism for good, you have to let go of religiosity and come out of the shadows. And that's an intentional phrase I'm using from the passage in verse 17, where he says, and this is, this is deep, really, this is deep New Testament theology of, for the first century Jew. These are a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. With this shadow versus reality thing, we have a metaphor. We have a very helpful one, actually, for understanding what's, how we can think about letting go of the moral scruple, you know, uh, obsession. So you imagine that your whole life uh, as a spiritual person looking towards God is, you know, you're walking along the sidewalk and there's a building, say, on your left, and down there is a shadow. When, where the building ends, there's a shadow. And you know that that shadow is cast, let's say, by God. And, but all you see is the shadow. That's all you have. And so you look at it and you focus on it, and everything you have you know, in, in your spiritual existence drives you towards that shadow. Now, what if you get there? I mean, how would picture this happening? You see someone do this, that, um, that they're walking along and there's someone that they're looking forward to seeing and they get to the edge of that building and they see the shadow and they get down on the ground and they start kissing and saying sweet words to the shadow and trying to hug the shadow and embrace it and they're on the ground and right there is the one that the shadow is cast from. That's the image here is... Um, shadow versus reality. Je- you know, and this is Jesus. And all these things that uh, these first century Jewish Christians were holding tightly to were the shadow. They were to lead you in the right direction. They were to lead you where you were needed to go to get God's peace and God's grace and wholeness for yourself and your identity. But don't embrace the shadow now that the one who the shadow is cast from is here. Turn Look, embrace, receive the embrace of the one who has finally come. Um, And, you know, it may seem to us like, well, this is just a a, a New Testament issue. This is a, a New Testament problem, but it actually wasn't. Because back in the day in Isaiah with the ancient Israelites, God is already trying to enforce this, reinforce this lesson of don't embrace the shadow. Just be aware of what it's pointing to. It's pointing to God. And so this is what, very interesting in Isaiah chapter 1. This is God talking to ancient Israel long before Jesus. And he says, in verse 13 of Isaiah chapter 1, he says, Stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals. Are you catching the similarities, all these things listed in our passage today? They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. 
When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Already, back then, the issue was there. Don't embrace the shadow. You're missing it. You are missing it. You do all of this, but you're missing what it points to. Um, I, uh, I spend some time, I try to do it about once a week where I go to the Cathedral of the Blessed Sacrament downtown and I participate in the Mass as a way to connect and have my worship time and where I'm just being led through Scripture and words. And, um, and I, what I love about that place and doing that there is, um, is really just the building and all the beauty of it and the, the, the glory of the architecture and all the, the, the things that are all around me and this, the, the cathedral, kind of the throne up there, and, um, and just the height and size of that building. I'm not a church architecture geek or anything like that. I've never done tours. Of the, but I know this building, and I know that when I'm in there, there's a sense of greatness in this building. Um, what it does for me is it cultivates my imagination in those times. It helps me um, get more and more into the mode of thinking about meeting God and thinking about the, the amazing greatness of that and just put, starting to put images to that and picture being in something like this only way bigger and even more amazing and more inspiring and God is up there on a throne like that and he's calling me forward and welcome, welcoming me into such an amazing, rich, amazing place in his presence. So my mind goes there and that building helps me with that and helps me think through do I feel that way about God? What has God done for me? Why would that be amazing? What would that be like? In a sense, I feel like it's preparation to meet God someday. But how silly would it be if I was walking around every time I was there taking pictures with my iPhone of every little board and every little pew and, and grabbing some of the water from the back, little fountain, when no one's looking and putting a cap on a little uh, film case maybe and bringing some of that water home and putting it on a, on a shelf in my study and, and kind of just getting down before that water. I mean, how silly would it be? Because all of that's pointing me towards God and leading me towards God. Um, the writer N.T. Wright <coughs> talks about this. <coughs> He's, uh, the Israelites and the Jews of Jesus' day always had what he says, or what he calls, the good and holy Torah, enticing them to make it an idol, to use it as a way of establishing an inalienable status of national privilege. This is what Paul can refer to, like in a lot of his writings, as Israel according to the flesh, which is kind of some lingo that Paul uses basically to say something that now he goes on to explain. He says this, one of the principal appeals of Judaism in the pagan world of the first century was its high moral code. It made heavy demands, and often when people are sick and tired of a murky and immoral world of paganism, they are glad to embrace a way of life which offers clear, clean, bright lines. And then he says that Paul basically is saying through his teachings here, go that way and the street will soon come to an end. You are merely being given, or you are merely being uh, you will merely be giving up a worldly self-indulgence of a sensual kind for a worldly self-indulgence of a spiritual kind. It's important to come out of the shadow and come out of embracing the shadows 
in our moral or scrupulous moralism? The answer, really, what is the answer? What do you do? Will you embrace the one who the shadow is cast from, that the shadow is pointing you towards? Think about it this way. Around every corner of your life, embracing Christ and not the shadow. Let him embrace you as you come around every corner and every turn in your journey. Whether you're at a point of feeling inadequate or you have fears or you have grief or you have doubt or you have great dissatisfaction in where you are in life, receive Christ's embrace. Now, one final thing. Receive what is already yours. A lot of what the energy that the Apostle Paul spends in Scripture is to try to get us to just believe what is already true about ourselves and receive what is already ours. Christianity doesn't say, well, you really need to focus on what might be yours if you could just try hard enough. Christianity says through the gospel that it tells you and tries to convince you what is already yours because Christ tried hard enough. So you kind of ask yourself, do you, you know, do you believe what's already yours? Do you believe this? Do you believe God has done something permanent and forever with respect to you, him reconciling you to his presence? Think about it this way. Do you still think that you have to put makeup on, as it were, to face God? Then you, you're still hanging on to the religiosity. <clears throat> There's an interesting thing that Paul alludes to as he closes this passage and talks about... Um, all of these approaches of getting our way to God, all of these boundaries, all of these intensive, you know, they seem really good and hardcore rules, all of them, he says, not that they're bad, but he says that they, lack, they don't lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now, that might mean something to you right, off, right away. But let me just add a couple things to it before I close. One of them is that the Apostle Paul has this way of talking about the old self, and he's alluding to that here. That the Christian looks at things in terms of the old self that died with Christ and the new self that rose with Christ. And he's referring to the old self. It's basically this part of us that uh, seems to have power over us and seems to always kind of bend us towards um, getting into places where we say, I didn't want to end up here. The old self, the sinful nature, sometimes it's translated as the, as the flesh, and he's saying, basically, you need something done for that. And most of the things that are your best efforts that you can throw at it will not have any power in dealing with it. Um, let me close with this. I had about a year ago some, <coughs> some bamboo shoots come up out of the ground about seven or eight feet away from the pot that was supposed to be containing the bamboo plant. And some of you might know, I knew right away, this is trouble. My whole backyard in a couple years could be bamboo. Um, because what it does is it sends runners down. It, it basically had sent a powerful kind of runner through a crack in the, this wine barrel pot, and it had shot it out, and these big stalks are coming up. Now, what most of us do spiritually speaking, most of our attempts are like coming out with the scissors to that and just clipping off the tops and feeling really good about ourselves, feeling really good about it, the containment of this issue. And I, know, I knew 
seriousness of the underground network of roots with bamboo. And I knew it was going to take about an hour or two of digging up and finding all of these. And they had gone in all directions. I had to get down there, and it had to be wholesale killing of all of it and getting rid of it. I, uh, I, watched, I was watching this. This is sort of my anti-bamboo diatribe. I don't know. This, I was watching this... Um, I was watching this documentary, and they talked about bamboo forests in China and how this strange thing happens that every, I think about every 50 years, it's a little bit unpredictable, they'll go to seed and they'll all die off. The problem for the pandas, actually, is what they were saying. But, but really, that just all is dead all of a sudden. What Christians hold to, what Paul is getting at, and what you need to know if you really want to know God is that that's what has happened in Christ towards the old self. And that, yeah, I know, all of us will bring to that, that prom- you hear that promise, you hear that hope, you hear those words, and you say, it sure doesn't feel like it. It sure feels like that part of me, that old self, is, 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 there hasn't been victory over it. It sure feels like that part of me is winning out in the end. It doesn't feel like I'm making any progress. The Christian, the Christian holds to, to that part of you as a foreign intrusion that God has, the death has been announced. The gospel says on the cross, there's a new life on its way. You'll still see the markers of the old life. You'll still see it there. It, it's going to try to convince you it has a hold. It's done. Keep going back to that message every day. Every struggle, every sin, every trial. The old self has, been di- has, has died with Christ. And there's new life. There really is. Let us pray. God, I pray that you would give us your help to know these words are true for our lives. As we um, struggle to uh, understand them, as we have questions, and as we um, have different experiences that uh, lead us to have all kinds of different barriers and struggles to believing your grace and the amount to which you have accomplished already for us, um, despite all those barriers and difficulties, would you break through for us and help us to believe, even using this time that we come to in a minute, um, to the Lord's Supper and to your table, as a way to concretely make real what you have done for us in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The, um